You're listening to the Fooled by the Root podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Heidi Marble, host of Pulled by the Root podcast. I am really excited to share this episode with you. Author Gabriel Glazier is simply a brilliant and brave human being. She is a journalist who wrote the most incredible book called American Baby. It is about the shadow side of adoption told through the story of David and his family. It is a compelling piece of work. I love how our conversation just dove into all these different areas. She has such a deep knowledge base about the history of adoption. I learned so much during this episode. She is just a fantastic person, and I hope one day I get to meet her and just give her a big old hug. (laughs) Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Pulled by the Root podcast. I am actually overjoyed and didn't even sleep last night thinking about being able to interview author, actually New York Times bestselling author, Gabrielle Glazer. She um, is an accomplished writer. She has multiple books, and I would like to read you her bio and then tell you how I discovered her. Gabrielle is a writer who challenges the conventional wisdom on subjects that broadly touch people's lives. Over decades of work as a journalist and author, she has examined how accepted practices in one era had unexpectedly and often devastating consequences in the years that follow. She believes that sweeping historical trends must be explored through the stories of the lives of the people who are most deeply affected by them. To fully investigate the story, she tells an American baby, She interviewed sources and visited archives in dozens of states from Oregon to Florida, as well as France and Israel. In her previous book, Her Best Kept Secret, Why Women Drink and How They Can Regain Control, was a New York Times bestseller. It looked at why women's consumption of alcohol has risen so sharply, how the 85-year-old faith-based program of Alcoholics Anonymous can be harmful to women, and which evidence-based treatments can help those who drink too much. Her work on mental health, medicine, and culture has been published by the New York Times Magazine, the New York Times, the Daily Beast, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, the Atlanta, and many other publications. She has appeared on many national radio and television programs, including NPR's Fresh Air, All Things Considered, The Brain Lair Show, NBC's Nightly News, ABC's World News Tonight, to name a few. And... To top it off, she studied at Stanford uh, University, where she received both her bachelor's and master's degrees in history. She grew up in Oregon and lives in New Jersey with her husband, and she has three wise daughters. So, Gabrielle, wow. First of all, how I discovered you, I got a ping on my phone on a Sunday morning, and my friend Marilyn from the East Coast said, Heidi, oh my gosh, turn on your TV there is a story on CBS this morning about adoption. And I instantly did that and I was riveted and pulled in by the story of of Margaret. And that led me to you and you were so gracious to respond. And as I have sunk into reading your book, I, I thought it'd be really powerful to just condense a few of the endorsements that were on the back because I think this nails it through powerful empathy and tireless reporting, you are shattering the the myths surrounding adoption. Um, the, The grief is just not acknowledged by society and your book is such a powerful, powerful story about all of that. And I wonder, Gabrielle, if you could just tell us how you came to write this book, I think it would be really important for people to know the history of how you got on board with the whole shadow side of adoption. Heidi, first of all, thank you so much for that incredibly generous introduction. It was very, very warm and I'm more than, I'm just delighted to be here and, and I'm honored to, to be your guest. So thank you so, so much for that. I really, really appreciate that, that very, very warm welcome. Um, but to answer your question about adoption and how I, how I came to write this book, I had been a reporter at the Oregonian in the early 2000s, and I was very intrigued by the way people in the Pacific Northwest 
um, create families. They might be a little bit different than um, in other places. There's a lot more, uh, as you know, because you live there yourself, it's a very progressive environment. And I was very, I started covering adoption, transracial, international adoption. I started covering surrogacy. So I was firmly rooted in the notion of different ways of family making. And in 2007, a story crossed my desk about an adopted man in Portland who needed a kidney and was getting one from a close friend. And it, it was a pretty standard story about a kidney donation uh, from a, a living you know, donor. And, but when I went to meet the man who was going to receive the kidney donation, his name was David Rosenberg. I was really swiftly taken by a very different side of the story. Here was a man who was a transplant himself into a family to whom he was not related. He was receiving a kidney transplant from a friend. And he told me almost within minutes of sitting down that he hoped the story would go viral and that his birth mother would see it and recognize him as her son. And he told a really, um, uh, um, the story that so many people were told who were adopted in the post-war pre-Roe era of secret closed adoptions. He said that he, the only thing he knew about his past was that he had been, his mother was a girl in trouble in New York City in 1961 and she had given him up and that he had been adopted in, she had wanted him to be raised by Orthodox Jewish parents. She was an Orthodox Jew herself. And um, he didn't know this at the time, but under New York law for decades and decades, adoptions were um, correlated to the religion of the birth mother. So he had been adopted by Romanian Holocaust survivors who loved him very much and who cherished him. But he wondered about his medical history for his three children. And he wanted to know more about what lay in store for them. He had suffered from many um, serious medical conditions in his life. He was only in his late 40s at the time. And he really hoped that he would be able to, to find out more. And the story did not go viral in the way that he wanted. Um, a lot of other people donated kidneys as a result of it, but his birth mother did not see it. Social media was just a brand new thing at the time and it didn't get posted on Facebook. Ultimately in 2014, my family and I had moved from Portland uh, back East and where we now live in New Jersey. And 2014, my phone rang, it was my landline. It said, David Rosenberg. He said, hey, it's David Rosenberg. Are you sitting down? And I said, well, now I am. And he said, I found my birth mother. She never wanted to give me up. She and my birth father married. They had three more children. I have a full sibling. David had a, a career as a cantor, which is a, the singer of songs at a synagogue. And his baby sister, his full sister was, a, was an opera singer in New York. And all, not New York, sorry, Berlin. Um, uh, opera singer in Berlin. All of these details of this life that he hadn't had of the family who had borne him suddenly flooded his beliefs about himself, his narrative, the, rever the, the narrative of having been quote unquote given up, the narrative of his mother being in trouble, um, somehow the idea that he had been an inconvenience, that she didn't want him and therefore placed him for adoption, all that turned on its head. And as someone who had covered adoption and understood the Brer foundations of it, I was so drawn by what had happened in the 52 years since Margaret Earl Katz, David's birth mother, had surrendered him for adoption and between their reunion. What were the social, political, legal, religious, familial barriers for those, for that mother and son to have 
been separated all that time. And what did that mean for the millions of other adoptees and their birth families in the United States at that time and the legacy of it? So that's what that's what it's a long answer to your question, but that's a uh, that's what drew me to this topic. First, it was the narrative, but then it was the social fabric of what had dictated that separation between those two people and millions of others. Well, and I can just feel when I read your book, the investigative reporting, you lived and breathed this. Like, I feel like you know more about adoption than I do, and I'm adopted. <laughs> like, like, literally, it feels to me that you, uh, you just took this in and just metabolized it through every cell in your body, the way that you write. And, and I would love to just humanize this it, 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 with Margaret, just thinking about her you, you have a scene in your book where Margaret has just had the baby and she's back in her room and the nurses are being very dismissive and rude and inhumane to her. And they're wrapping her chest in an ACE bandage to suppress lactation. They give her pills and she's resisting all of this and, and she spits them in the toilet. And I, I just think that that visual of how inhumane like she was treated and, and thousands and thousands of other birth mothers. Uh, it's just shocking and it's difficult to think about because you're right, we, the adoptee has a narrative in their head that they're not wanted. Um, and often I think it's despair that leads a birth mother to these decisions. And, and also, as you point out, some coercion, you know, that's also part of it, especially in this era. And yeah, I just, uh, through Margaret's story, I was really able to deepen my understanding starting at that very base level with the birth mom and, and what she experienced, was, which felt very inhumane, very inhumane. So Margaret's experience, and you're right, it, it, it was inhumane. Margaret's experience as a young birth mother, Margaret got pregnant at the age of 16 uh, with her, the one, you know, an only love of her life, her high school boyfriend, later husband, George Katz. She got pregnant the first time she'd ever had intercourse. And like millions of other young women at that time in the immediate post-war era. So let me just set the stage for that. Shh. Birth control was illegal until 1965, even for some married couples until the Supreme Court decision of Griswold versus Connecticut. Sex education was non-existent, abortion was illegal, and yet the sexual, sexual revolution was simmering. And young people had privacy in new suburban homes, unlike they'd ever had before. Margaret and George happened to live in New York City, but nevertheless, more mothers were working at that time. So there was privacy in, in, in the apartments of, of working parents, working some working mothers. And a lot of young women got pregnant, not being married. Prior to the post-war era, those young couples would have been forced into shotgun weddings. But immediately in the years after the war, there was a middle class to aspire to. Young men were expected to go to college. Young women were expected to go become mothers and homemakers and raise these large families. And that was the expectation in the baby boom. If you couldn't have a baby, if you were a married couple who was unable to conceive, there was a secret way, it wasn't secret, but it was, I'll get to that in a moment, but there was a, a way for you to create a family. And it was through the babies who were these young girls, an estimated 3.5 million of them who got pregnant out of wedlock, were forced into a secretive system of maternity homes, of having to go away to a, to an aunt, to an aunt to um, live out their pregnancy in shame and seclusion and fear. Nobody told them what to expect during pregnancy. Nobody told them what to expect during childbearing. Nobody told them basically what they were told from the adoption industry. And that was the middle, that, that, that was the middleman in between these families who couldn't conceive and these young girls who were forced to surrender their parental rights, the, they, they were, the, 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 the adoption agencies 
basically just told the, the young women, you will forget this child. You will go on to have children of your own one day. And they were led to believe that, okay, well, um, the, I guess that's what I'm going to have to do. They weren't allowed to talk about their lost sons and daughters. And of course, Heidi, you're a mother. You, you understand women don't forget the biggest transformation their bodies will ever experience, which is not being a mother and then conceiving a child and bearing a child. That's a huge transformation. You don't forget that. You don't forget it when I think it's so, so heartbreaking and all of this too, is the way that the system felt that they could break that bond. I know in my case, my birth mother was completely drugged so much so that she couldn't push. And I actually have a scar on my face from the forceps and she didn't even know what sex I was until we were reunited. And the whole idea of that is so that there wouldn't be a bond. But the point is there will always be a bond that these tactics, I, I just think that they're devastating psychologically for, for everyone involved. And they were aided and abetted by a secretive adoption system that began in the 1930s. It spread nationwide with, to every state except for two, Alaska and Kansas. And what it did was when a child who, who society forced the mother to surrender the, the, the child, when an unwed mother had a, a, a baby, that child was born and issued an original birth certificate that was sealed to everyone but state officials and adoption agency officials. The birth mother couldn't see it. The adoptee certainly couldn't see it. And we'll get to that in a minute. And when a child's adoption was finalized, the adoptee was issued a secondary, basically falsified doc, but not basically, totally falsified document that listed the, the, the adoptee's name as the adoptive name, not his original given, his or her original given name. And it listed the adoptive parents as the adoptee's original mother and father. And in 41 states still, it is illegal in many cases for an adoptee to obtain his or her original documents that, that tell him who he or she is. And that was another thing that broke that bond. The system, which was an industry and was an incredibly lucrative one, really profited on that secretive methodology that just drew a thick, thick line between an adoptee and his or her birth kin. There was no way until DNA testing and until some of the, the, the laws have changed, there, there has been no way for adoptees to access their, their birth relatives. Yeah, and it's such a human rights issue. And I think about the case of David, and I know also when I found my birth mother, she had genetic breast cancer. Mm. And when I found her, a year later, I had it. And had I not found her, how, how many people have died because they don't have, they're just in this medical vacuum. And I think how different would so many lives be, including possibly David's, we can only assume. But it just feels so, just so wrong that, that that is not available to us. And I think the, a powerful line that was in your book is there's a closed door between the parties forever. Mm -hmm. But luckily with DNA and other avenues, adoptees have been able to reunite with family, but a lot of times they find a headstone. And that's a very difficult, difficult reality as well, because searches can take a long time. And DNA, for David, it was an incredibly helpful tool. And for so many millions of others, I know hundreds of thousands of people, it's also a helpful tool. But in my opinion, it does not obviate in any way the need for adoptees to be able to obtain the human and civil right of the piece of paper that tells them who they are. First of all, not everyone has relatives who happen to take have $99 or $159 to take two or three different DNA tests. 
um, people of color in particular, they don't necessarily, given the systemic racism in our country, the medical racism that that we that has left such a long legacy. Henrietta Lacks, of course, forced sterilization, Tuskegee. There are not a lot of, of, of people who are of, of color just say, oh, I wanna um, send my DNA off to a big tech company in California and see what, see what pops up. It's not something that people universally trust. It doesn't matter if you're of color or not. It's not something that people universally trust. So it's completely the luck of the draw. And in David's case, he was extremely fortunate to be able to find a distant cousin who was, a, who was incredibly skilled at genealogy to be able to link him with Margaret. But Margaret, at the end of the day, just getting back to that story, Margaret, as a 17 year old girl, did everything she could. She and George Katz did everything they could to try to keep the custody of their son and at really the the last straw they they planned to go elope and get married um they were not uh, uh of legal age to marry in new york at the time the the age for women was 18 and for men it was 21 so they had arranged to go elope in south carolina where they were both adults but they hadn't been able to save the money in their you know, teenage jobs to go do that yet. And a month before Margaret's 18th birthday, David was still in foster care. Margaret and George went to see their son. He was five and a half months old. They were, they were granted an, uh, a half an hour visitation right. Margaret was sequestered into a room alone. Social workers had badgered her throughout her pregnancy and throughout the first five and a half months of David's life. And finally, they threatened her with juvenile detention. And that was, for her, the last straw. And it wasn't an idle threat. Because until 1971 in New York State, it was actually illegal to have premarital sex. So Margaret's shame at having born a child out of wedlock, having shamed her, her Orthodox family, been really scandalized by this pregnancy that was unplanned, she didn't have a leg to stand on. What good was she going to be if she was in reformatory school as a 17 and 11 month old girl? So ultimately she signed the papers and that was it. She and her son lost, lost 52 years of, of, of togetherness. And that story is just a stand-in, like your story with your mother, for all of those years of, of, of wondering, of wondering, you know, in, on, in Margaret's case, what happened to my son? Was he, is he happy? Is he thriving? Where is he? She was told that he was going to be adopted by diplomats. Nothing could have been further from the truth. Uh, he was in foster care for several more months, ultimately adopted by this couple who loved him very much. But he first went to one family that rejected him after 11 days. And um, David was told that his mother was an aspiring scientist. And really, as I said earlier, was, was made to sound as if he was in inconvenience. Maybe she was going off to medical school and had better things planned than a baby when she was 17 years old. But in oh. fact, he was wanted and cherished and loved. And the only thing that Margaret believed that she could do as a mother, as a nurturer from afar was to call the adoption agency in New York called Louise Wise Services. You may remember it because it's the same one that separated the, the identical triplets and, and twins. And the one thing that she felt that she could do was to pass on all of the medical family history that she had from both sides of the family. And when she and David reunited, she was shocked to learn that he had never received one single message his entire life of, of, of the years during which she had left, she had left word about diabetes, about gout, about different cancers, all of which David had had diabetes, he had had gout, 
And he ultimately died of a, of a lethal form of thyroid cancer. But who knows what the cascade of illnesses prior to that diagnosis, what, what you know, had he, had he been able to prevent diabetes as a, young, as, a, as a kid, had he known that that was, that he was at risk for it, who knows what would have happened. Look at your situation. What was it like for you as an adoptee to go to the doctor and have a medical form asking for your family history on both sides. What was that like for you? It was hell. <laughs> it, it would just, it just confirmed that I was other than, there was not a box for me to check. Mm-hmm. It was if I just appeared out of nowhere and my history wasn't relevant and it was shamed in my family. Questions were, you know, it's your fortunate, you were saved. That was, that was the narrative that was going on. And so I suppressed my own needs to know until I could no longer suppress them anymore. And when I had my son, that's when it became overwhelming to to find. And it actually destroyed my relationship with my adopted mom, who was very important to me. And I think that that's why these conversations and books are so important, because I think the more people understand about the trauma and the needs surrounding all parties, that if you choose to adopt a child, there are special things that you need to be aware of. That child is coming to you traumatized and that lives in your body. And I am just now becoming aware of this at 55 years old. And now that I understand, I actually can rewind and see how that constant fear and anxiety that moves through me, um, it, it, it has an origin and that origin is the wound And, you know, you and I discussed too, the just disenfranchised grief. Mm -hmm. And I think why your work touches me so deeply, and I don't mean to get so emotional, but I feel like you're an ally. And I feel like having someone like you, so passionate, so versed and educated in these issues saying, wait a minute, this is not okay. You didn't give up a child but you feel this so deeply and that's what we need. We need society to say, oh my gosh, as you said, we can't have a smooth narrative. Um, That smooth narrative is not telling the truth at all. And I went on a rant there. (laughs) No, you didn't. No, you didn't. And it's really powerful and important to be able to hear your, your voice, all adoptees' voices, birth parents' voices, the adoption narrative that we have been presented with in this country that we are still presented with. In, I was just talking about this the other day. There was a movie that came out just a few years ago called Instant Family, where Mark Wahlberg and Rose Byrne adopt children from foster care and they're sort of angry that they're not, you know, uh, happy with their fancy Christmas presents. I mean, it was just, it, 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 it was, I couldn't believe that in 2018, we're still facing that story that is presented as the following. Your birth mother couldn't keep you or didn't want to keep you. You were placed in into an adoptive family because she loved you so much that she wanted strangers to raise you and everything is supposed to be better in your in the home where you were adopted because there are two people who really wanted to be parents and everything is fine and we're going to put a really pretty bow around that whole paradigm and nobody should ask any questions least of all the adoptee And no one seems to recognize, because we have this, as you said, this rescue narrative, this saviorism going on in so, so often when we hear adoption narratives, that it's completely overlooked that the adoptee, the adoptee's life began with loss. The adoptee's life began with rupture. Think about your mother. Your mother wasn't allowed to hold you. She didn't even know what sex you were until you found her, what, 30 some odd years later? Yes. 
she thought you were a boy. She did. And I'm sure that I'm sure that you were loved and cherished, but it sounds to me by, by your adoptive family, but it sounds to me that, you know, like many adoptive parents, and I don't mean to speak for them, but let's just put it this way. In the years after the war, in this post-war period that I write about in the book, the impetus was on providing families with children, not providing the, the best home for the baby. It was about making sure the adoptive parents were satisfied. It was about their wounds in being, in many cases, unable to conceive children of their own during a period in American history when that was the most important thing. As Betty Friedan wrote in The Feminine Mystique, the only way for a woman to become a heroine was to have a child. And if you couldn't have a baby in that period, you were really suspect, you were, my empathy goes to adoptive parents as well. Nobody was examining what the reality was for an infant who had suddenly got thrust into the hands of people who didn't smell like him or her, didn't sound like him or her, nothing was familiar. Of course it's a trauma. Of course that remains in your body the rest of your life. Think about the dysregulation that an infant has when there isn't that smooth transition. What you, I mean, babies typically go to foster care. I mean, now in, in open adoptions, it's changed a little bit and, you know, placements are swifter, but in those, in that period, babies went straight to foster care and they stayed there sometimes for months during the home study period during all sorts of medical testing that went on. And sometimes, you know, and, and as I point out in, in this book, really barbaric, sinister experimentation on adoptees. Of course there was a rupture, of course there was a trauma. What is that like for a tiny infant baby? So they don't even know what day, what, you know, when, what, what time, what, when night is. I had one of my babies was completely turned around. I have three daughters, as you said, and my oldest one was completely turned around for the first two or three weeks of her life. And she was with her, her parents. She was with the parents who had conceived her. That was dysregulated. I mean, she was dysregulated. Uh, that- it's, it, it's, it's, such, it's such a humongous and complicated issue. And I think you know, when I'm looking for a solution, because I'm always trying to find a solution, what is a solution? I mean, we can't really simplify it, but we should definitely, records should be open. But what happens if a parent can't take care of a child? And I know there are always going to be those instances. My gut tells me that family preservation should be step one, that resources should be directed to try to see, can this parenting work out? Can we keep this child in this family? Uh, that from what I'm hearing, and I'm new to all this, that feels like instinctive that we start with trying to solve the problem where the problem is. And then if that fails, like, how do you see that? I would love to hear your point of view after really, you've been immersed in this. I could not agree with you more. I think family preservation is the most, is the key. If a child cannot be raised by his or her biological parents, then the next best thing is, and well, the first question is why? You know, what, what, what do we need here? And in some cases, as you say, if there's severe drug addiction or, or mental illness, sometimes that's just not possible. But if there's a financial problem, well, we should be able as a society to, to fix that. And if the biological parents are unable to, to be able to, um, raise the child, then what about next of kin? What about family members who would be able to stay in with the proper support? And 
be able to give the parents a chance to get back on their feet if, if that's what and if that if there's been some sort of devastating recent trauma in the parent's life what do we need to do as as a family as a society in order to make sure that that happens the biggest thing that is devastating to adoptees is this whole issue of secrecy and you know there are open adoptions today that is not a panacea i don't want to in any way indicate that oh well adoptions are open today so everything oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's good that mostly they're open, but they are not necessarily they're not legally enforceable. Um, I'm hearing all since the the publication of the book, I'm hearing all sorts of horror stories that I that I'm investigating about what that landscape looks like, and promises are made to birth families about ongoing openness, and then lo and behold, the next thing the birth families know, the adoptive families have moved two states away. And there's another rupture of, of something that was promised to be integrative and ongoing and, 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 and allowing a, a child, an adopted you know, son or daughter to, to realize, okay, well, this is, this is my birth family. This is where I come from. They're not able to raise me. And I, these are my other parents. Allowing a child to integrate that at an early age is incredibly important. I'm not saying it's, it's, again, it's not a panacea, but it is certainly better than the secretive, um, hush, hush, uh, don't ask questions universe that happened in from 1946 until 1972. Yeah, I, uh, I, my deodorant is failing, like I am just, <laughs> It, it just all it makes my whole body react like to hear to hear these these stories and to also know just my own personal experience and to be able to relate to this so deeply and you know I think about also the transracial adoptees intercountry adoptees that I've been speaking with who have even more to contend with um, you know they're losing country they're losing culture and so this issue is really really global in its significance. And I think one of the other things that is very, I think the statistic I looked up and I could be wrong, but I think the adoption industry was like a 15 point some odd billion dollar industry, like it's monetized. And whenever there's money, there's corruption. So that's a whole nother podcast. But I think the way that the system is set up is certainly not for the best interest of the child in most situations. And so I think your book is so, so revealing on so many levels. And I just wonder if we can just go back to, to David for a moment. And also there was something that you said about the Jewish religion, which I thought was so beautiful when you said, I don't know if it's um, how you would uh, explain it, but you said that you, you have to do something to heal the world. And, and I feel like this book and certainly through the example of David, I just, I would just love for you to explain that a little more and what this means to you. You know, obviously you're a reporter and you're professional, but like as a mother and as a human, how does that translate? So in Judaism, there is a belief that the world is, is in, in disrepair, but we are each born with the possibility of helping to heal it. And we might have different skills in helping to heal it. Maybe somebody is a wonderful teacher. Another person might be a doctor. And David was incredibly engaged in his community. He was very much an active clergyman. He counseled people. He performed weddings and funerals. And he sang. He had a voice that was just transcendent. And when... and and. Part of the story of the original kidney story was it was a piece that we were timing to run with the Jewish New Year Rosh Hashanah or maybe Yom Kippur. I'm not sure. Anyway, the, the, the high holidays at, that come in, in the fall and about the responsibility that each Jewish person has to heal the world. It's called Tikkun Olam. And the, the, the original piece about the kidney donation was this 
was highlighting this, how this kidney donation was healing the world. It was, and healing the world isn't just healing the whole world. You can heal the world by giving a thirsty person a glass of water. That's a that's an act of kindness. That's an act of loving kindness. That, and 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 humanitarianism. That that I mean, it's a small one, but giving a kidney is another huge example. So that piece was a piece for the lay press just to describe that concept. And David was really good at identifying the ways in which people could perform acts of goodness in the world. And when he called me to tell me that he had found Margaret and that she lived 45 minutes from me, just, he'd already mapped it out on Google Maps. He had my address, he had a Herman. And he was like, oh, she's just down the turnpike from you. Um, he, he made it clear that he, he wanted the story of their separation and the things that had kept them apart to be known and the way to heal the world, the way to heal that situation, the way to heal this adoptee separation from birth kin was to expose it and to highlight what it means, what this narrative has meant for our country, what this narrative has meant for millions of adoptees who are basically told to feel lucky and grateful and not to squawk about their losses, to be glad for their new families. And that's not to say that they aren't, but it's not recognizing the backstory of the loss and the trauma and the separation and the human and civil right of being able to access your own origin story. Adoptees have stolen origin stories. They do. And, you know, you mentioned uh, transracial international adoptees. That's a, that's a, that's in the enormity of that, the enormity of those losses, the loss of culture, the loss of mirroring somebody who looks like you, who every time you go to the grocery store, every time you go to school as a, as a child and you're a transracial adoptee, people look and they look twice and they don't mean to, but they do. And you are told, well, you were in an orphanage and we got you and um, now you're a Johnson. Well, you're not a Johnson. And you lost, as you said, food, culture, language, a history, a country. And we don't recognize that. We see it as this happy, oh, look, this celebrity has adopted a baby from this impoverished country. How wonderful. Look at the wonderful life they, ha they now have as the son or daughter of a celebrity. Look at, look at how fantastic their lives are. The, the, the adoptees themselves become celebrities. Well, you wonder how those adoptees feel. That always, that, you know, you just, you look at those, they're now, I'm thinking of some adoptees of very famous people and you just wonder, wow, some, uh, some of their lives are, you know, very, very much in the tabloids. What else is going on behind, in, in their hearts? Their parents are fighting in the tabloids and, and they have a whole, as I said earlier, stolen origin story. What is that like for them? We just see, oh, they are the son or daughter of these famous people. How lucky. I, I, don't, I don't see it that way. Yeah, I, I don't see it that way either. And I think that I've been talking to adoptees from all over the world and helping professionals and, and original families and also adoptive families to try to have communication and open dialogue so that there can be more understanding. And, and I think the universal theme is this profound loss that is so unrecognized. And I think that by the tsunami of voices that are rising, all of us are connecting people like you coming in with these 
incredible stories and uh, professionalism surrounding balance and journalism. And this is so needed in this community. And I just want to say thank you so much for that, because what a gift to be able to have this book out in the world. And um, it is going to be one of my, my treasures for sure. And I wonder as we're, as we're beginning to wrap everything up, is there anything that you would else you would like to say to hopefully this broad audience that is, that is listening in? You know, how can we further wake people up and open the eyes of understanding? Because these are difficult conversations. You know, there's automatically defensiveness, uh, I think. And it's, it's just like, can we just listen? <laughs> I know it's not that simple, but it feels like it should be. <laughs> Well, one thing that I can definitely say is that it's important that people know the history, of course. It's important that people understand that adoptees are cut off, divorced from their original identities in 41 states. It's important to understand that in this moment of national reckoning over past social injustices, this is one that is ongoing, the legacy of it is persisting in some of the largest states. California adoptees have no right to their original birth certificates. Washington uh, adoptees do not either. Texas is about to have a huge, uh, there's been a huge groundswell there. The the, um, House side adopted an open access bill for adoptees a couple weeks ago, um, 144 to one. That's going to the Senate. And so for anybody listening in Texas, call your state senator and list your offer your support for this bill. Maryland just slapped one down. Maryland is a progressive state, a progressive blue state. And adoptee rights activists there were not successful in convincing legislators to pass a bill that would allow them to obtain their documents, their original documents. And it is important to, for everybody in this country to understand that this is a human and civil right. It is a human and civil right to understand where you came from. Sometimes people will question, they'll say, well, what if the What if the child is the product of rape or incest? Well, that's tragic, but that person deserves to know how they came into the world. Just the other day, someone was saying to me, well, what if it's traumatic for for the birth mother to have to face this history again? Well, it still doesn't obviate the adoptee's right to know his or her origin story, his or her birth family. And yes, there's still shame and secrecy and we need to to expose the reasons behind the shame and secrecy. Why was there shame and secrecy? It was all placed on the shoulders of women and their sexuality, which was forbidden and, and still is in some cases. So we need to examine that. We need to examine what, what, our past prejudices have led us, how they have led us to act today and how we can change that. We have a lot of, we have a lot of changes to be making in this country. And so, so, yeah, so beautifully said. So beautifully said. I I think it would be just incredible to, to just revisit David as we end. And I know he's gone now. But what did it mean for the two of them to know each other before he left this world so that people can understand that these choices can lead to significant healing as well? So David was dying of a lethal form of thyroid cancer uh, when he was able to reunite with Margaret and his baby sister, the opera singer, Sherry. And... For him, it was to be able to understand and accept that he had been loved 
by his mother every day of his life reversed his entire narrative. To understand that he had three full siblings, to understand that he had a father who had died of some of the very same illnesses that afflicted David, to understand that when George Katz died in his wallet, hidden behind, you know how we used to have those little plastic, fold before, before we had iPhones, we had those yes. folders of, 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 of school pictures of grandchildren and wedding photographs. George Katz had a wallet before he died at the age of 56, waiting for a kidney, by the way. Um, he, underneath, behind, tucked in deep inside his wallet, away from the grandchildren, the children, the grand graduation pictures, the wedding pictures, was a tiny little snapshot that he had taken of David the last time he saw him in foster care, the day that Margaret was forced to sign those papers because she was a minor. To understand that his father had literally carried that image with him next to his body for 50, not 50, but however many years that had been, decades, was incredibly healing. I'm so sorry they never got to meet. <laughs> Margaret believes I have. Margaret believes they Yes, are. yes. I, I think Margaret might be right. <laughs> oh, this time with you has been such a gift. Thank you for sharing when you're so busy. Your book, American Baby, A Mother, A Child, and the Shadow, History of Adoption, it's a must read. If every person read this book, I think that would be enough to shift the narrative. And thank you for fighting for your mighty spirit for the healing that you're doing in the world. And you are an example and I thank you. <laughs> oh, Heidi, thank you so much. I'm, I'm really moved. Um, thank you very much for that. Uh, we need you. <laughs> well, I'm here, I'm not going anywhere. And I'm still, I am not done with this topic. There's so much more to explore and to write about. And, and um, I'm just grateful for, I'm grateful for your attention. I'm grateful for your kind appraisal and there's more work to be done. So. Absolutely uh, sister, we, we've got, we gotta keep going. <laughs>